I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hello, and welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. And we have a really good interview for you today. It's with Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, who is the founder of Gaia Women's Leadership Project, as well as you may have seen her on Facebook with her daily resistant live cast that she has been doing since March of 2017, and they're incredibly, incredibly powerful. So Elizabeth is the CEO and lead executive coach for the Gaia Project Consulting, as well as a career coach. And she is celebrated as a fearless entrepreneur, having been recognized by Ariana Huffington, Allie Brown, Daily Worth, Worth FM, and Amanda Steinberg, as well as the Emerging Women Live founder, Chantal Pirat. And she used to be a lawyer on Wall Street, a serial CEO and entrepreneur and high-powered executive coach. She used to be working 80 to 90 hours a week, so she gets what that world is all about. But after a 15-year career as a full-time Wall Street securities litigator and trial lawyer, she founded the Gaia Project Consulting, LLC. It's an executive consulting and coaching firm that serves senior executives across tech, finance, banking, law, fashion, healthcare, nonprofit, and consulting, propelling its clients to new heights of growth and professional alignment. And she talks about how she does that in this interview. And it's really, really interesting to hear how she's bringing new paradigms of feminine leadership into large companies that really have been traditionally like the old guard. She's been featured on CNN, lots of other places, Forbes.com, Elle, Harper's Bazaar. She also has two kiddos, four and five, and she lives in Brooklyn. So she is a total entrepreneurial mama. And we agree on a lot of things, which is probably why I like her so much. <laughs> that's, that's fabulous, Kate. No, but you know how sometimes you hear somebody talking and they like articulate what you believe so much better than you could even articulate it that it makes you fall in love with them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's ballsy. She is. Love her. She's a rock star. I have been following her for... She actually listened to our podcast. That's how I found out about her. Do you remember this? It was like way back in the day and she wrote us some message about was like, you know, like your podcast, something along those lines. I think that's... I think that's how it got started. Anyway... But yeah, and so then I started following her because I was like, this woman is a powerhouse with what she was running with Gaia. And then she started down these daily episodes called Resistance Live. And it's all about nuggets of basically taking all of the drama that happens in our government and political system and business world the previous day, five days a week, and kind of puts it all together in a 15-minute or so Facebook Live every single day. And she's grown to over, basically now her videos are reaching 100,000 plus people per day, which is incredible. And it started with her the thousand reach. friends on Facebook that she actually does know. Yeah, it's just, she started at, and it's just crazy what and she's grown to. happened in 10 months. Yeah, super quick. And it's because she's been consistent and relevant content. As Gary V, what did he call it? He called the three C's. Content, community, mm-hmm. and... Consistency. And consistency, but I don't think that was the third one. I'll find it and but tell you. But, but those are good. Those are Mike's, <laughs> those are three, Mike's C's three C's slash two thirds Gary. <laughs> but he's talked about that. So he talked about this in Thank You Economy, which I remember we read that book a few years ago, and it's, it's the best book he's ever written. Yeah. So we talked in this episode, as Kate said, about leadership inside of a executive corporate world and what that looks like for her going in there as a help. And then also we talked about like what it's been like to resistance live you know just from that day-to-day operation and then also kind of what we as individual citizens of this country and many other countries beyond just the united states can do to have our voices be heard where we think we live in a country here of 330 million people and it can seem very very large and overwhelming but there is ways that our voices are able to be heard and allowing our voice to speak up because as she said at the end of the podcast which you guys will hear but like she started this as one voice. It was just her voice. And what it's grown into now is incredible. I think you're going to love it. Let's go to the episode. Just to let you know, there's a little bit of beeping that goes on in the beginning of the episode from a sound standpoint. 
before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know we did take care of that. So stick with us for a few minutes. We just she had to shut down some. <laughs> it's pre- pretty funny. Just listen. But yeah, there was just some beeping that goes on. So it sounds like like somebody's calling in on your call or on your phone or anything like that. Enjoy the episode. Cheers. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. This is Mike. And this is Kate. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hey, I'm so yeah. happy to be here. By the way, we'll do an intro afterwards. We yes. didn't tell you that before we started recording. We are so happy to have you. I have just so enjoyed listening to your podcast and your resistance live feeds because I am one of those people when I start hearing people talk about politics as much as I deeply desire to stay engaged, I really space out. It's like I'm just going to totally out myself. It's like a lot of names and a lot of positions and a lot of, it's just like feels really jargony. So it's been so great to listen to you and understand what's happening because you're, it's short and you're not repeating yourself over and over again. And it's like, and I know that your perspective is from the perspective of feminism and women's leadership. So I'm like, okay, well, I trust this woman. So I listen more deeply. So I just want to say thank you for what you're doing um, because I'm benefiting quite a bit. That's awesome. I'm so glad. I get a lot of like crazy feedback along these lines. It's, it's fun. And it's great to hear it from you. I mean, people recognize me on the street right now, which is a very new experience for me. But when people come up to me, there is usually this thing of like, you've made it all understandable or you've allowed me to survive the toxic stress by giving me some hope. Um, right. So, you know, and that's, and that's been part of it. You know, it's one of the reasons why we, even though it started to take over our business in such dramatic ways in the last 10 months, I kept saying to my COO over and over again, like, we have to keep going. We have to keep going. It's part of my service. You know, it feels very much on path and on purpose for me. So can you take us back to, cause what happened is I was driving home from a girlfriend's house in Massachusetts and we had the first time scheduled that we were supposed to do this. And I know we've rescheduled several times. So I was getting ready. And so I was listening to your, <laughs> to your women's leadership podcast, which I loved. And then all of a sudden it was over and then it was resistance live. And Mike had told me about resistance live. So I was up on that, but can you just talk to us a little bit about the journey of what happened and how you got to this point where now 10 months in resistance live is kind of taking over your business and you're yeah. like, no, this is a good idea. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really interesting. It's kind of a strange story because none of it was predicted or planned and no one was as shocked as me, I think at where it's gone from when it started. So, you know, my background is I was a lawyer for about 15 years and I had always been an activist. You know, I was raised in a very activist household. I had done, you know, work on behalf of victims of campus rape when I'd been in college. I, you know, there's a long history of this. And even when I was a lawyer, I did securities litigation on Wall Street for a very long time. But my side gig when I was doing that was human rights litigation that was directed at war crimes against women and other types of really big women's rights law issues. So around the election, you know, I'd always been a political wonk. I was very much a supporter of Hillary Clinton. I took my kids to see her speak at the Brooklyn Navy Yard the night she won the nomination, you know, had been very vocal on Facebook to what was then my like, you know, a thousand personally known friends (laughs) about what was going on in the election at the same time as I had been doing this women's leadership work now for about 10 years. And so Right around the election, Amanda Steinberg, who I know is a mutual friend of ours, yeah, said to me, you know, you ought to think about, you know, doing something with this so you don't have to type so much. And I, <laughs> I love it. I was writing posts like nonstop trying to explain what was happening. And the closer that we got to the inauguration, the more I was writing. And so we got to January and she was like, hey there's this really great new feature on Facebook called Facebook live. And maybe if you just hit the button and started talking, people would, you know, that would just be easier. I do love that because I happen to know that Amanda didn't try Facebook live for a very long time after that. So it's great that she was like, Hey, you should do this. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's Amanda's and I have, we have a lot in common, but you know, we're the kind of friends where like we talk late night on Facebook over a glass of wine on Facebook messenger. And it was literally that kind of a conversation where she was like, you should just press the button and see what happens. And so, uh, so I did. And the first broadcast was really like a kind of like tap, 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 is this thing on sort of thing. But it was an opportunity for me to just kind of riff on what was happening in the political sphere. And as a litigator, you know, I used to try cases. So I'm very good on my feet and, you know, with a set of talking points and an understanding of what's happening legally and in our government and in the background, you know, I can answer questions kind of off the top of my head. It's the benefit of all those years of doing that, I guess. But 
it very quickly morphed from this very rough and raw sort of thing to all of a sudden something that very quickly went viral. And what I know now, which I didn't know at the time, was that we were about two weeks into doing it when someone shared the broadcast inside the main Pantsuit Nation group. So all of a sudden, oh. we had mass exposure to like, you know, okay. four or five million people who very clearly were grieving and struggling and trying to understand what was going on in our government. And we were off like a rocket ever since. And so, you know, we gave it a name and, you know, now we broadcast every single day, usually at 11 o'clock if I can swing it. And yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a really interesting intersection because the thing that that's sort of tricky is I think I originally started thinking, I'm just going to share my legal knowledge. You know, that's not what I'm doing anymore. I haven't actively practiced in years but I can share that. And then I, I think I realized probably about a month in that really there was such anxiety and need in the field. And as the resistance kind of grew as a movement and we recognized that like 86% of the calls being made to the Hill were being made by women, it became very clear to me that the intersection of my legal background and my women's leadership work was like this, right? Like this was, this is the nexus of it. And so I always try every day on the broadcast to leave everybody with some kind of point of hope or some, some point of consideration about where we are culturally and as women and leaders and not just in the context of what's happening with the government. Because I think if you just focus on that, it's so easy to get depressed. But if there's an anchor into which we can all sink our gifts and our intention and the future that we want to build, it's a very different thing. And so, yeah, that's kind of the background in the story. It's, it's fast. And like I said, it's still a big surprise to me. I mean, we've had to rearrange my business in all sorts of crazy ways to accommodate it. And it's been great. So talk about the, like, how did you start this project? Like what your, so resistance has kind of taken this resistance live has taken over your business. Talk about what your business has been up to this point. Like, so when I left wall street about, it's now, I think almost nine years ago, I decided I wanted to be an executive coach and I had done my own coaching process while I was still a lawyer and I had done a coach training program and sort of realized very quickly that there were very few people who were operating as coaches who had done the kind of 80 to 90 hour work week on wall street and really understood what that meant for women and men, honestly, because I've coached both and we still do, but you know, most of my audience now is women. And so when I left, it was just me. And like most coaches, you know, kind of back in the day started out kind of like, you know, beating the the bushes and doing a lot of free speaking engagements and kind of, you know, talking to bar associations about leadership and stress and all that other sort of stuff. And the curious thing that happened pretty quickly, and I think it probably had something to do with the fact that I left Wall Street with a lot of really serious connections. And there were so many executives that I knew who also knew that I got it, that we took off very quickly. And it was a very unusual trajectory for a coach you know, I was kind of back to what I had been making on Wall Street within a couple of years, which was sort of surprising. But then we began to scale. And the scalability was really where we kind of took a turn that went more into women's leadership because we started getting retained by corporations to do big scale leadership projects. So, you know, an investment bank would bring us in and say, we want to change our corporate culture so people aren't eating each other alive. Can you teach us how to do that and train our people, coach them one-on-one, And so as that happened, we then realized that we needed to be training our own coaches because we needed to have people to staff our corporate gigs, the bigger that we got. And so we very quickly began doing that. And now we have like 40 certified coaches all around the world who work on our engagements. And so the corporate arm of what the company does is one thing, but then we have this virtual arm, which is the Gaia Project for Women's Leadership. So Gaia Project Consulting is corporate and Gaia Project for Women's Leadership is really our virtual training programs that are designed just for women leaders. And Those are really built around, they've always been built around a kind of new model of aligned leadership, like new paradigm women's leadership that is really about the idea that we can't have it all, you know, like that's all one big freaking myth. I think we all agree on that at this point. But what we can have is lives that are really deeply in alignment with our values. And high achieving women have certain challenges that we all face because of the culture that we were raised in, right? Like the imposter complex is literally an experience of every single woman I have ever coached. The issue of how do we deal with all of our responsibilities as women and if we're mothers, those as well, and the cultural dynamics of what has been put upon us as success is all, you know, very unique and still very gendered. And so that aspect of what we do is a big chunk of helping women leaders to rise in ways that 
don't require them to lose their minds. It's where we're kind of like an anti lean in. Honestly, our view is that, and I know you share this, the, the simpler we can make it, the easier it is. Oh, that that's all- the first chapter oh. of my next book is called lean out. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I and when you said that in your first episode of the Women's Leadership Podcast, I was like in my car by myself, just crying. <laughs> I was like, and I got off, I got home with Mike, and I was like, I was like, I love that woman. <laughs> she is. Like, it was. It was she like, is like. She, I was like, I love her. <laughs> I was like, I I've been watching her for a while. I, I, I know. I know. Okay, so I want to back up for a second here because yeah. I want to know more details and. Yeah. When you're working, let's just take JP Morgan Chase. I don't know. Yeah. You know, that's just, I, this is an example I'm using for those of you listening. Just like when someone hires you, walk me through what's happening when you go to these companies, yeah. right? Because this is a very yeah. large organization. This is all around the Good globe, question. internationally. So like, say I want to help change my leadership and create a different environment. Like, what does that look like? Do you just yeah. sit everybody down on a virtual camera and say, be nice to each other or what? <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish. I wish it was that easy. No. So ordinarily there's a whole bunch of steps, but as with anything else, by the time people get to us, they're usually in a really serious point of crisis. So, right. you know, for instance, you have the kind of traditional masculine models of leadership where all that matters are time and money. Like how hard can we work people to make as much money as humanly possible? And one of the things that that creates is a lot of competition. And in a lot of these old school boy environments, it's like, eat what you kill. Don't collaborate. You know, don't share your contacts. Don't work together because your bonus or your comp is dependent on what you do for yourself and not what you do for everybody else. And it's kind of the antithesis of emotionally intelligent leadership, right? Because you've set up an environment, and I've seen this so many times now, where your leaders are trying to destroy each other fundamentally. And it leads to a lot of unhealthy practices and even sometimes to, you know, investigations and prosecutions because the communication breakdowns and the corporate culture are so toxic that people can't even see when really serious problems are arising. So when we go in, it's usually because there has been a recognition somewhere in the senior leadership that the problem is affecting the bottom line and is potentially in some cases like, going to cost the entire company its existence. And so we'll go in and say, okay, what's the problem, right? What do you think the problem is? Articulate it to us. And then usually what we do next is say, okay, here's our recommendation. Like we actually need to sit down and interview everybody in this particular leadership team about what they think is working and what they think is not. And that is a long process. Sometimes that'll take us like a month of interviews of all the senior leaders in a given group or a given division. And then we pull that analysis together and really get a big picture of what the most pressing issues are. And from there, we make recommendations. So we will go in and do like two, three-day big group trainings on things like emotionally intelligent leadership, on nonviolent communication strategies at work, on how to create collaborative environments and cultivate team. And, you know, we'll also, of course, if we're called upon to do it, do all that and more for teams of women leaders who are up against unconscious bias and gender discrimination and, you know, other issues in terms of policies that may impact their success. So we will do that. And then when we go really deep and, you know, again, we customize all of this for the corporations that we work with, depending on need, but we will actually coach one-on-one senior leaders for six months to a year so that the leaders who in particular are either culture changers or group heads or promising talent have an opportunity to really get their best practices nailed to create transformation inside the organization. So it's a long process. I say to everybody that I talk to about this, like six to 18 months is like the minimum span of time that it takes for when you're in an institution, let's just say by example, JP Morgan, that's been around for a hundred years or 200 years to shift their culture in a way where people actually care about each other again, that can't be done overnight. It's a process of really opening people's eyes Uh, more than anything usually in senior leadership to how much it impacts the bottom line if you don't have healthy corporate culture. And what do you see after, let's say, six to 18 months? What are some of the shifts? Obviously, people are being nice to each other again. So that's amazing. And that's worth it. Yeah. What are, (laughs) that's, that's great. What are some of the other things you're seeing as far as results within those organizations? Yeah. The biggest impact that we see actually is in a willingness to collaborate, which Mm. you would think is something small, but when you've been in an environment where it is eat what you kill and you're competing against everybody around you, when people actually can start to work together, 
and through, you know, the leadership methodology that we teach, understand their own assets and liabilities, they can then pair up with people who complement them rather than assuming that they themselves have to do it all. And so that actually makes companies a lot more money. If you yes. Could, people can go in and sell together. And then when they're executing in the workplace and they're building teams, they can say, okay, I'm not, I'm really not good at details. So let me make sure there's somebody on my team who maybe isn't a big picture visionary, you know, maybe isn't a quick start, but is someone who can really drill down on what it takes to execute and complete a project in the best possible way, because I'm not any good at that. And so you not only change performance and success, but you also change the bottom line because those kind of teams and collaborations can then be sold to other people and other companies in ways that make them top of class. And so, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that makes me really happy when we really have made an imprint. Not only that corporations are great to their people and they create teams that people love to work at, you know, even in really traditional corporate environments, and then also where their success, they understand that their success is inevitably dependent on other people. Because it's a much more joyous way to work, frankly. Absolutely. Now, what if you're working in a corporation where things are toxic and it is really that old model and they're not hiring you <laughs> and you feel, <laughs> and you feel like, you know, you're a woman and there is that gender bias and people aren't communicating. They're not kind, they're not collaborating, but you would like to create more of that. Are there any recommendations you have that you can change from sort of like an entrepreneurial perspective to shift even on a smaller scale? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is that I, you know, and I know I'm a huge fan of Brené Brown's work, as I know you guys are too, but the issue of authenticity and vulnerability and leadership, I think is more important than it's ever been. One of the things that, you know, even the studies that are done of millennials, for instance, show is that more than ever before, people want to know you as a human being. And Mm -hmm. the more that you can, I think the more we dissolve the barriers around like, this is work and this is home, or this is work and this is my personal life. First of all, the happier we all are because women in particular tend to compartmentalize in these ways and feel like they're one person at work and one person at home. And that to me just isn't healthy, but also that. So you're saying actually, because of the technology that we've adapted and how we're, you know, we're attached to these devices and we are able to work from wherever we want dissolving the silos of like specifically just work or specifically just family is actually a good thing. I'll tell you, I think that the more that we are ourselves everywhere, the more successful we are, frankly. I don't, you know, and this is what people always say about me is that I'm what you see is what you get. So, you know, whether I'm working at home or, you know, and my CEO, my entire team is remote. Our whole company is remote, right? So like we're in three different time zones and we work together over Zoom and over Slack like everybody does in this kind of brave new world. But, you know, one of the things that's important to me is that my team knows what's going on with me. So if I have a day where, you know, one of my kids is sick, the first thing I'm doing is telling people that on Slack. Or Mm. if I have, I have someone on my team right now, a new administrative assistant that we just hired, who also happens to be an energy worker. And part of what she's charged with is making sure that I'm not burnt out. So all of that to me, you know, is, is indicative of, you know, what I see as the importance of transparency and leadership, but also connection, right? Because if I'm just forcing myself through a given day, that's really busy and I have an attitude and I'm maybe exhausted because my kid was up all night and, cranky and I'm not disclosing to my team that I've got all that going on. Signs can get misread. Communication lines aren't open. Problems develop, you know? So to me, it's, if you're looking to create a healthy and less toxic workplace, one of the things that has to happen first is that you've got to be open and transparent yourself about what's going on. Yeah. And then you model to others how to do that. So you kind of have to own your own shit. Sorry. Am I allowed to swear on the yeah. podcast? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I love that. And we do operate that way in our company as well. But you know, we have a company of nine people, most of whom are independent contractors. So like, I'm just thinking about like, my friends who work at Random House or, you know, Goldman Sachs or whatever, like it's not they can't just like kind of show up with Spit well, up on their sweater and be like, hey. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Here's the recommendation I make, though, for people who are in those more traditional corporate environments versus, you know, our situations where we right. all have more control. I do think that boundaries can be really important when you're thinking about how to set up your life, even if you're in that environment. So one of the things that that does mean, and I do recommend that people do this, is that you actually don't stay connected 24-7. 
yes. um, that, you know, you go home, you put your phone in a drawer for a couple of hours, you connect with your partner or with your kids, you know, you make a point of not modeling to other people that they have to be on deck 24 seven. And also, you know, even for people who are mid-level executives who we work with, what I say is that, you know, if people know that when you go home for two hours, you're eating dinner and putting your kids to bed, and you're probably not going to be available during that time. And you set that boundary, people get used to it. The, the thing that scares some of the people that I work with in corporate is when I say to them, no, you actually can put the phone down for an hour and like the world won't blow up. Like go try it. And sometimes there are sort of withdrawal symptoms, right? Oh, you know, for really sure. But nonetheless, you know, that's also a part of authenticity, I think, in leadership and in our work is that, you know, we need to be able to do what we need to do in priority with what we value. And so you start doing that even as a mid-level you know, and if you, if you're up against a boss who is demanding that you be on deck 24 seven, you don't have to tell them that you're doing this. This is what I always say, like yeah. 60 minutes, trust me, pretty much anything can wait an hour. And usually if you're in a crisis situation, you're going to know that before you put the phone down. Yeah, I know. I always say like in our company, I'm like, there are no blogging emergencies. There are no internet marketing emergencies, right. you know, in, right. unless you are like a heart surgeon or, you know, an OBGYN or something yep. like there's yeah. very few careers where there are real emergencies. Right. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. But it's become a norm that everything is emergency and the right. reality is it's right. not. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that is one of the things that I recommend that people do. Like, is it really a crisis at like, if it looks like a crisis, it's coming at you like a crisis. Is it really a crisis or is it something that could wait until tomorrow? Because nine times out of 10, it can. And I think part of the problem is that we feel like we've lost our agency over all of this, right? You know, like we've forgotten that we actually have control over time, right? And it feels that way because we have the ability to have constant access to one another. But in reality, we can make choices about how we engage and how we interact. And that alone can make our working lives so much more sane, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, how have you reorganized your business as Resistance Live has become really this movement and this phenomenon? What needed to give in the rest of your business? What needed to come on board? And kind of, can you walk us through the behind the scenes of how you restructured? Yeah. It's, and, and it's funny because my COO was really not happy about this when it happened, which is sort of a thing that, you know, we did a fall tour. We did a speaking tour this fall all over the country based on resistance. I Live. saw that. You didn't come to Maine. What's up with that? I know. I didn't come to Maine. Because no one lives here. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I we saw your speaking here. tour. I was no like, I want to go. Here. You're like in Seattle. And I'm like, yay. <laughs> I know nobody comes to Maine. Next time. We're, we're, we're looking at dates for 2018. I'll keep you next time. Yeah. Boston's a hub. Boston's a hub. And we've got a call to come to Boston, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So my COO, about like about three weeks after we realized what we were in, that, you know, we were adding hundreds of followers every day and that it was taking a lot of time and that my focus on politics and research and law was getting kind of turned. My COO called me up and she's like, I just think you have to stop this. And it was a really interesting conversation, you know, and I love her because she's unafraid about challenging me. And that's a really good thing to have in a business, right? If somebody goes, wait a minute, are you sure that this is the right thing to be doing? And I said to her, MJ, I actually think we're going to keep doing it anyway. And, you know, it's, we're riding a rocket and let's see where it goes and kind of trust that there's a reason and we'll figure it out kind of as we go along. Now, the reason why she started to get very concerned, though, was because we were eating up staff time and there was no revenue rolling in from any of it. And I said, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. The first thing that happened on that front was that we had to make a decision about programming for this fall. Because what we realized was that all of a sudden we had this huge new audience that wasn't the audience that we were used to catering to in the past, which was largely executive women. And now we have this audience that is still largely women, but also some men. And also an audience that is driven toward activist leadership, which may not necessarily be corporate, right? It may be NGOs. We've got women in programs now who are running for office. And so we started exploring how it was that the methodology and the things that we've taught before to women leaders might flip to a more activist bent. And so we scrapped our fall programming, which was supposed to be the Women's Leadership Masterclass that we taught a number of times before, and instead started a program called RISE, which is an activist leader boot camp. And that is underway now. It's an eight-week program. It's a vast, we've got about 50 women in it, very vast diversity of women from all over the world, from all walks of life. 
We did about 30% of them in scholarships, which was more than we had ever given away before. And we did that purposefully because we wanted to open it up to women who were from different backgrounds, different education realms, different interests, and give them an opportunity to also learn from it. And that program now is really driven toward supporting women leaders to make as much of a difference as they possibly can in the world in whatever realm they choose. So we've done a lot of work about finding your voice and where are the places that you can make the most difference? What are your limiting beliefs around the idea that you might be able to make an impact in the world around issues that you really care about? And it's been um, really dynamic and interesting and never having done it before. It is the most wildly engaged community that we've ever had in a program that we've run. So people are really inspired and, and already, you know, one of the people who's in our group is now a founder of the Me Too March that's going to happen in New York City next month. We've got women in there who have now decided they're running for office, city council, women in there who are incorporated and are you know, doing very big advocacy campaigns to change corporate policies to benefit women and minorities. And so it's just been fascinating and a really great intersection of what we did before with what Resistance Live has been all about. But, you know, there's other things that have come in that are still big question marks. So I have an editor at Random House who is chasing me for a book. I am not a published author yet, but that's fascinating. And, you know, Warrior Women in Leadership is somewhere in the realm of this, you know, it's going to come to pass hopefully in 2018, but we'll see. And, you know, the speaking tour was kind of off the cuff. We didn't plan to do that. And then we had audience members who were like, please, will you come to my city and talk to us and, you know, let us get kind of close in and ask you questions. And that was also really fascinating because one of the things I discovered was that people really wanted, and I don't know if it's just because the inspiration side of what I'm doing feels really powerful to people, but it was very emotional. And I didn't actually expect that. You know, there was a lot of tears shed and hugs and thank you. And, you know, and, and I love that. And I also am so quick to say, I am the conduit, right? Like I'm not the guru. (laughs) I am the conduit and I'm really happy to support your transformation through this, but I find celebrity a little weird. And so that's also been kind of an interesting development in all of this. Cause that was um, really like all of a sudden. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, running a company, you do have some level of leadership. Yeah. Already, right? I mean, I was on CNN before I had some high profile media gigs, but it's not the same as being recognized while you're like shopping on a Saturday morning in the grocery store in your sweatpants and people run up to you and say, resist. You know, like, that's <laughs> <all> <laughs> You're like, what's so, wrong with the pants? So, so how <laughs> many people on average are watching one of your live casts right now? Live, when we're actually broadcasting? Either way. It's, it's usually over 1,000, but our daily views now, some days get over 100K. Our averages right now run somewhere around 30 by the time we're in 24 hours because people watch the broadcast on repeat. And, you know, it's okay. now on iTunes and YouTube and Stitcher yes. and everywhere else too. So right. um, it's so not just on Facebook, different. even though that's where we initially broadcast. So yeah, the reach is huge. And, and, and you, ha- you haven't switched from, you do this on your personal page, right? Yeah. And what, can you talk about the decision to keep it on your personal page? Yeah. You know, it's, we went through this over the summer really significantly. And, you know, one of the things that we were concerned about, because I have, I've always had a professional page. One of the things we were concerned about was that if we moved it over there, we did all this deep dive into Facebook. We would lose viewers fundamentally. Yep. And the followers seemed, you know, this, the investment for, on my personal page is interesting because it is my personal page. And I'm also pretty transparent about who I am and what's going on there. And we just kind of decided that we didn't want people to get lost. And even though there was a risk to doing it, because, you know, obviously Facebook treats personal pages very differently than they treat professional pages, that for now given that that's where the core of the energy seemed to be, we would stay put. And we might revisit it down the road, you know, but I sort of feel like right now we're in a pretty good place with how it's working. And we opted to just not take the risk that we would leap and everyone would be confused and we would lose followers and all of that. So yeah, yeah it was well run basically advertising. You just can't run ads. Right. But we run ads through the business page and we refer people there and, you know, everything is linked together and, you know, now we also have discovered Patreon, which sort of has changed the whole model quite significantly as well. Talk about so, that. 
Well, so it was interesting because I started, one of the things about the personal page, (laughs) I occasionally started getting fed up with how much filtering of like trolls and bots I had to do because we get nailed, you know, it, it goes in fits and spurts. Yesterday was a really bad day for us. Like I was on there and so was the team for like four hours where we were just deleting, blocking, deleting, blocking, deleting, blocking, and really vicious stuff in some cases that was trolly and other stuff that was very plainly just bots. But it's a lot of staff time to kind of deal with it. And I hit a wall, I think it was probably in September where I I was having a bad day and I went on there and I was like, you know, we're doing all of this for free. (laughs) And, you know, I'm really frustrated with like the effort that is coming into this. And then we're getting hit with nasty comments and I'm getting hit with kind of like awful direct messages that are like sexist and, and sometimes like assaultive, almost violent. And somebody said, Hey, you know what, Elizabeth, you might need a Patreon page. And I was like, what's Patreon? I had no idea at the time. We had it up, you know, quick start visionary. I had it up in 24 hours and was like, let's just see what happens with this. And now the good news is that I think as of yesterday, we have about $8,500 a month in monthly sponsorships, which doesn't even cover 50% of our staff costs for the month. But all that said is growing and it's mostly people who are subscribing at two to $5 a month, which is also really incredible. So, you know, it's like 1500 subscribers, but you know, we have people who say, you know, I'm retired and even on my fixed income, it's important to me to support what you're doing and your voice and that, you know, your company isn't losing money and your staff isn't not able to pay their rent, you know, which isn't going to happen, but you know, it's nice to be able to not have them doing stuff for free that we have to fund from other parts of the company. And it's been a great opportunity because the question I got asked on the speaking tour more than anything was how can we support you? What can we do for you? And I was like, Oh, just being here is fine. You know, but it's really nice now to be able to say, you know what, you could make a $2 subscription on Patreon and that would really be great. Yeah. And I just want to really commend you because I think that within women's leadership, there is this, as you know, huge gap between a woman's actual value and her feeling of being valuable and her willingness to receive in exchange for the value she's offering in the world. So that's such a great modeling Mm -hmm. of like, yeah, actually I am doing something awesome. And PS, you can contribute. Right. Like, that's really great. <laughs> yeah. Cause that will give women permission to do that. And for those of you uh, chiming in and being like, what the heck are you guys talking about? Which we'll do this in the introduction where we said it in the introduction, yeah. but just at this point, it's like Elizabeth goes on here every single day, basically five days a week. Right. Yeah. Like resistance live is five days a week of a sum up of, I mean, you could spend it all day talking about this stuff of what happened the previous day or where we currently are with what's going on in the political system. So any new, highlights that happen because it's very overwhelming and it's moving very, very fast. And so the one thing that I've noticed, because this is the first time I've really started paying attention to this political world before the election, because I remember telling Kate, I was like, Trump has a really good chance to win. And I was like, I was like, no way. Yeah. I, was I was like, like you're so full of it. There's no way. And then the, I cannot, I mean, of because course we can all remember the morning we woke up and yeah. I didn't stay up because I had just assumed. I was up the whole but thing. But like, whole thing. just because of growing up in Indiana for me, growing, being in manufacturing my whole life, understanding what people are going through, you know, as these companies and manufacturing, understanding like really, we can really, really see right now is like how screwed up political system is because like all these harassment are coming out against these men and in companies they're fired within eight hours. Like there's no question, but politics like Roy Moore could win Senate seat in Alabama for having allegations of, harassing underage girls but like the sum up of what elizabeth does on a daily basis for resistance live is to sum all of this stuff up and makes it in biteable or digestible yeah digestible biteable biteable snacks (laughs) um (laughs) it's a snack show (laughs) of the political realm (laughs) so yeah digestible like tidbits of what's going on in the political world because not everyone like i like to listen to podcasts and now some they're take an hour hour and a half to kind of and these are from people that are very knowledgeable in the political world like that spend their whole careers there not everybody can do that and it can get really dark and depressing sometimes so what you do what she does who happen i'd be looking at at this moment in time but what elizabeth does is makes it very digestible for in a 15 minute chunks or less each day that you can just kind of understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And how you can take action. So that's kind of what I want to trans. Do you have? A, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Transition to is like, how can the listeners, because a lot of people will be like, I don't know what to do. Where do I start? This is overwhelming. Like yeah. it's Trump, this or Putin or North Korea, or it's, this is going on or this fake news and Fox, you know, it's CNN, whatever. So where do we actually 
start as like citizens of the United States or anywhere that's around the world listening to this because we know there's situations all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I always say to everybody about this is that the people in our government work for us. And it doesn't matter if they're the people who technically represent us, the people who are on the Hill work for us. And one of the things that I think is really important to people who want to get active in some way about what's going on is to remember that we're their employers, basically, right? And so one of the things that means is that we get to ask for what we want. I've talked to a lot of people who are not activists before this election. I get emails all the time from people who say, there's, there we go. Who say, for instance- Kate raised her hand. Oh, yeah, for, I was raising my hand. Those of you. Sorry, I forgot this is yeah. only audio. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, who, have ne- who never called the Hill before this and are afraid of doing it, right? Like literally are like, I'm going to call the office of a senator and ask for something. Um, and one of the things I have to say is like, no, actually, that's, what, that's the way our democracy is designed. Like yeah. you're supposed to be making your voice heard when there's something going on in your government that you don't agree with or you don't like, or there's a policy that you want to have adopted. And I think that the distance that's been created, it's very artificial. It's, you know, it's privilege, right? Between the idea that, the, the government is untouchable versus the idea that they work for every one of us, that once that boundary is crossed, it's much easier for people to become active. And so from there, what I say is you should have the phone numbers of the people who represent you on speed dial. And there are you know many people who are in our community now who literally have them in their cell phones so that they can make phone calls every day about the pressing issues of the day, whatever they may be. You know, like my mother, my stepmother jokes all the time that, you know, her senator in Pennsylvania knows her name. So that then when they call, they're like, hello, Mrs. Cronice, nice to hear from you again today. Like, you know, that, that level of activism is starting to happen now with people who are really committed to what's going on. So that's the first thing. But there's a lot of us who are introverts who don't want to make phone calls about things that matter to us. And so, hooray for modern technology. Resist bot is out there now, which is, I'm going to, I think it's 50409. Don't quote me on that because I might be wrong about the numbers, but you can text resist to resist bot and you, you give them your zip code. It automatically sets you up to send messages to people who represent you. And also, by the way, they recently added the feature that you can now send messages to the white house. So that's an added bonus on resist bot. And literally it asks you questions over your phone and you can text the things that you want to say to your representatives into your phone and it creates them in a letter and sends them off by fax or email. And so there, you know, again, this can take five minutes of your day to make your voice heard about what's happening in the government. There's also fax zero, which lets you send five free faxes a day to anybody on the Hill. And so there are lots of ways to reach out at this point, but the overarching message that I give to everyone is that none of the horror show at least as I perceive it, that is ongoing right now in our government is going to end until he's out of office. And so I do recommend to everyone that whatever you do in your resistance efforts, you are always asking for the impeachment or the removal of the president under the 25th Amendment in addition to everything else that you care about. And that has to be the constant mantra that is being sent to the Hill because impeachment, removal of the president is not just a legal matter, it is, but it's also a political matter. And until there's enough of a rise of public opinion that it's time for him to go, the folks on the Hill are not going to be motivated to actually make it happen. And so I've been saying that since January and I will keep saying it throughout today. And, you know, we're recording on the day that Mike Flynn has been indicted and is pleading Mm -hmm. guilty. And so, you know, we're going to see a lot more tipping in that direction, I think, going forward. But yeah, that's the kind of baseline 101 resistance that I give to everyone who's never done it before. So what do you mean by, I'm just curious, like resist? Right. Mm-hmm. When you say resist, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, so, you know, the term resistance, there's so much historical significance attached to it because La Résistance in France was the sort of underground movement to resist Nazi Germany when Vichy France existed and there was occupation of France. So there's a little bit of a historic point there that's really about secret movements almost to resist fascist or autocratic governments. The resist thing happened very virally. You know, I don't think that there's been, I don't, I don't think I'm not aware of who was the original author of it. And, you know, for this particular point, but to me, what it signifies is taking action against government action that you disagree with really fundamentally. And it goes further than that because I also am very mindful of the fact that resistance isn't enough. I am sure you guys have heard me say this, but to me, if we're only resisting, we're not actually problem solving for the future. And so I ask everyone as often as I can to also keep in mind, even if it's just 1% of what you're doing every day, 
a vision of the world you want to live in and what we're all going to rebuild when this is over, because it's people like us who are going to be doing it, you know, and we need to be thinking about what we want our government to represent from a value standpoint. What do we want our society and our culture to represent and how do we want it to operate? Because the louder our voices get and the more of us who run for office and the more of us who have big platforms like this one to convey the things that really matter to us, the more of a chance there is that we are going to be able to build a world that we want to raise our kids in and that we can all be proud of. So, so resistance is not just about pushing back. It's also about really opening the door to the future that we want to build as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. And this is an interesting tidbit about, do you know the 1787 in the 2018? Did you hear this? No, at all? no. So the days, the, okay. I always try to say this and people don't understand it. So, because it's confusing. <laughs> it's a confusing thing to say. <laughs> Basically, January 1st is a Monday of 2018. Okay. January 1st of 1787 was also a Monday. Okay. Okay. For the entire year of 2018 and the entire year of 1787, the day of the week and the calendar day will all be the same. will be the same. Does that make sense? Yep. Yes. In 1787 was the year the Constitution was signed. God, it was the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia was in 1787. Right. What? It's the first governing document was signed. The Articles, the Articles of, Confederation. of the Confederation. Okay. okay. So what's interesting about this is that we had Jennifer Raspio. Or Raspio. Raspio. Sorry, Jennifer. was on our podcast. She's also our like life astrologer or origins astrologer that happens. And she said kind of where the planets are aligned at this moment is in moving into the 2018 is all about truth. It's like truth of what's being exposed in this country. So I always find it fascinating that the year of 1787 is going to line up with 2018 oh, yeah. and it's all going to be you know, it's taking us back to our roots and really exposing where we are. So you talked about like, keep resisting until Trump is out of, I call, I always say Trump, but I always put a lowercase T. So I never actually address it by an uppercase T. So the, it's like, he's out of office or not no longer in office. So how is that going to fix things? Well, it might not. So, you know, the thing I do say is that I view resistance as a marathon and not a sprint because the the way the dominoes could fall on this from a legal standpoint is very diverse. Like even if we end up with President Pence, we had a lot of work left to do there, right? Because his policies are awful. I mean, especially for LGBTQ Americans. I mean, I'm really afraid of what that would look like. So I don't think we're done when Trump is out of office, but I do think that we may see a lot of dominoes fall in quick succession here. And that may mean that somebody ends up as president who we can't predict at this moment because Trump gets impeached and then it's President Pence. Then he names a vice president. That person gets approved by the House and the Senate. That and Pence gets impeached. You know, who knows? Yeah. And, you know, in the White House. So I think it's not just about the structure of the government itself, of the executive branch. You know, one of the things that I think we're going to see in 2018 is a complete overhaul of our representation in Congress. Yeah. And, you know, what happened in Virginia, again, it appears to be leading the that way. That was on. so cool. I cried that morning cool. looking so through my not. Instagram feed. <laughs> I know. I totally get it. And and to me, it's that it's about the fact that when he's gone, we are, and all of them are gone. Cause I refer to this as like Trump and co, right. It's not just Trump, yeah. it's all of his company to me, you know, there's going to be a lot of healing that needs to be done because the wounds are deep. And the metaphor that I keep using on the broadcast is that it's like the boil has burst now on so much toxicity, oh, yeah. whether it's about race or about gender or about immigration or, um, you know, about taxes, you know, uh, healthcare, you know, how do we deal with our citizens, citizenry? Who do we value? Right. All of that is going to need to be cleaned out and healed. And some of that has to happen by the voices of the vulnerable being the people who represent us going forward. And so I think 2018 is going to be a watershed, honestly, in terms of that. But, you know, my bet as well is that we're still going to have a lot of work to do as the dominoes are falling here and people are leaving or being impeached or being prosecuted or resigning to really think about the repair Right. And that's one of the reasons why I want people to be holding on to the idea of the world that you want to live in, because repairing it means taking action to make it better. Right. And not just taking action to resist, but taking action to make it better. And even in your own local community, you know, and there are so many examples of this now, but 
here in Brooklyn, there are people who have keys to my house because they're vulnerable in one way or another, you know, and or not legal citizens or something like that. So that at any point, if they need a place to go, they know they can come to me. Those little gestures of building community are also things that build toward the future, right? And then the bigger things of using our voices in ways that maybe we never have before, becoming more courageous, um, stepping into kind of our authority and our gifts is a part of what's going to make the world one that we want to live in. So it's a long haul conversation, right? Like I wish I could say like, he's going to be gone and it's all going to be better. It'll be a lot better, but it's not going to be done. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. I have a a couple, like a month ago or so I started thinking about, or I've been thinking about this a lot longer, but it's like Trump was actually the greatest thing that could ever happen to the United States, even though it's one of the most darkest things because it's, it's just like, it's like, it's exposing all of this toxicity, toxicity that has been, yeah, that, that has been buried for so long that now it's coming to the surface. And I just like, and people are, we're changing the dynamic of what the future is going to look like. Yeah. The silver linings are huge. And I also, you know, in my more esoteric moments, think to myself, like, who is the soul that signed up to be him? Oh, whoa. <laughs> Absolutely. To come in and be the catalyst for this and the, you know, the object of so much hatred and rage. And, you know, that it's just on a spiritual bent, it's fascinating. And, you know, it's also, I wouldn't wish this, I always say to everybody, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, right? Like, you know, the last 10 months, 11 months in this country, especially for people lacking privilege, has been so terrifying and so awful And simultaneously, I think if we don't see all the dark underbelly, if our shadow is not brought to light, we never would have been able to start healing and really fixing and repairing it in the ways that we're all going to be called to do going forward. So yeah, so I generally, I agree. Not that I wouldn't go back in a heartbeat and change it. You know, of course. I know, right. Of course. Yeah. It can be both. Yeah. It can totally be both. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been just such a good conversation. I'm so grateful for what you're doing. I'm so grateful for your voice and for you joining us. So you gave people kind of like the starter's manual for activism and resistance, which is awesome. And where should they go? What should they do to connect and to learn more? Yes. So, um, so there's a couple of places. So our website, which by the way, now houses everything from like, you know, corporate opportunities to virtual programming to the broadcast, because we have a whole broadcasting drop down menu now is GaiaLeadershipProject.com. But if you want to watch the broadcast and join me on Facebook, you can just do that by going to facebook.com slash Elizabeth Cronice started before I was married. Um, And you will land with me right there every day. And I'm also, of course, on Twitter. EC McLaughlin is the Twitter handle, although I'm not nearly as active on Twitter as I am on Facebook. So those are three really good places to start. These all have the ability to screw up spelling. So for people like me... They're all linked up at the katenorthrop.com forward slash podcast. But for those who are just listening, I'll just be clear. Gaia is spelled G-A-I-A, Gaia Leadership Project.com. And, and, and then name. Elizabeth Cronice is Elizabeth with a Z. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then Cronice is C-R-O-N-I-S-E for Facebook. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. This is awesome. Is there any final words that you want to make sure people know? I think the message that I would want to leave everybody with is just that, you know, no matter who you are and no matter where you come from and no matter where you find yourself in relation to all of this right now, your voice really does matter. You may think one voice doesn't make a difference, but I'm just one voice. And, you know, the story that of what has happened here for me, even in the last 11 months is just the story of one person deciding to use their voice in a particular way. So for anybody out there who hasn't yet spoken up or thinks that it doesn't matter, I would say, please you know, take that big courageous step and make the first phone call or send the first fax and make your voice heard and understand that you matter just as much as every one of us. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. This is such a pleasure. You're totally awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So are you. <laughs> Thank you. Ever feel like you're constantly doing things, but aren't able to carve out the time or energy for the things that really matter to you? Mike and I want to share our top five tools for making a life, not just a living. To learn what they are, go to katenorthrop.com forward slash tools. See you on the next episode.